Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. You know, I, I honestly consider it a privilege for us to be able to gather together. Certainly, we live in a country where we're not afraid of people banging through the doors with uh, guns or things like that. Uh, so there's certainly a freedom that we have here, but we have this privilege. We have the, the Word of God in our hands. Each of us do pretty much uh, in the room here, and many of us you probably have Bibles scattered throughout your house, uh, and, and that is certainly a privilege that over the, the millennia people did not have, and so uh, we delight in it to be able to gather, to hear from the Lord what He has for us uh, is truly a blessing. Let me pray for us as we, uh, we dig in. Lord, thank you for that truth. Thank you for the Word of God. Lord, I cannot imagine uh, what it would be like to walk with you without the certainty of the Word of God, Lord, to order our steps and to establish our foundation. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that when you left, you did not leave us here as orphans, but you gave us the gift of the Spirit to guide us and to direct us. Lord, the way that your Spirit ministers to our hearts and unites us as a body of believers, both this group of believers in this room and from this fellowship, but Lord, scattered around the world and throughout uh, the history of the world. And, and Lord, we, uh, we see our part in that. We're delighted. We pray that you would be working within us, that you would use your word in our lives. We pray that you would be working through us, that we would leave uh, this room having been sort of fed and established and strengthened for the week that is ahead of us. Lord, we pray you would open our eyes to see that we might minister to the needs of others, Lord, both within this congregation, in our family, Lord, the people that we work with, the people in our neighborhood, Lord, the people we come in contact with. Lord, truly that you would send us forth as your servants, as missionaries, Lord, to a world that is in need of a Savior. And Father, anyone that's with us today that does not yet know Christ, in the sense of knowing him as the one who's taken away their sins, I pray that today, Lord, uh, as you've done for so many of us in this room, you would open our eyes, open their eyes, Lord, that their heart and those layers that have formed over the years, Lord, would be cut and be exposed and the truth of the gospel might enter in and new life might come. And we believe that's a prayer according to your will and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I said earlier that we are a blessed people. There's a guy that we're going to look at today that is anything but blessed. I'm going to call him unblessed. If you look at his life, it looked like everything was going great. But as we entered into last week, you begin to see the tables turning. And of course, if you've been with us, I'm talking about this fella Haman. Haman, who rose up to be the second most powerful person in the world ruling empire of the day, Persia, in some respects, really ran things because the king had given him his signet ring and basically said, I trust you, do whatever you need to do. And everything was going for him. You may recall, if you were here last week, he goes home to his family and he begins to tell them of all of the wonderful things and how wonderful of a person that he is. He said, I have all the wealth in the world. I have 10 sons, which was a sign of stature. I tell people what to do and they do it. And the king and the queen have invited me and me only 
to a special lunch. This guy, he is just rattling off all that is going for him and how quickly all of that began to change, begins to change, as finally the man that he wants to have executed, this guy Mordecai, as God sort of turns the tables. And rather than having Mordecai executed, instead he has to parade Mordecai through the streets. As if he himself is a common servant has to parade him through the streets and say, this guy is wonderful. Everybody should acknowledge how wonderful he is, the very man that he can't stand. And the tables begin to turn. And you may recall, it was at the end here of our study. It was chapter 6, verse 13. A little puberty action there, forgive me. Uh, But it says there in Esther 6, 13, Now Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And again, we pointed out last week how different that was from a a day earlier when the wife said, you should have him executed. Go tell the king to have him executed. Now she's saying, I told you so. Of course you were going to fall before this Mordecai. And I'm, I'm sure that really helped him out a lot there. Well, anyhow, as you come to verse one now of chapter seven, Notice, actually, uh, verse 14 of chapter 6, the last verse there of the chapter, it says, Now while they were yet talking with him, that is uh, Haman speaking with his friends, speaking with his wife, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And so the context of things, you can remind yourself, is this. They had had this special feast. Esther had gone to her husband. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was a very big deal. Nobody was allowed to go to the king unless summoned by the king, even his wife. And so she had taken the chance, gone to the husband, gone to the king, and said, I would like to have a special meal, just me, you, and Haman, just the three of us. And they're there, they're having this meal. The king said, all right, what is it that you want? I know you didn't put all this together for no particular reason. What's your request? And it seems to me, I told you this, that maybe she chickened out. And it, or she didn't sense it was the timing, whatever it may be, a little bit of both perhaps, and she doesn't ask her question, and so I think she stammers and says, uh, l- can we do this again tomorrow? Let's have another lunch tomorrow. And that's what this is referring to here in verse 14. It's tomorrow. It's lunchtime or dinner time now, and so the eunuchs there, the servants, as it says in verse 14, they arrive. Haman here, he's whining, he's crying, he's upset, his day is miserable, and of course, ding dong, the doorbell rings, and oh man, now I got to go get dressed and take a shower, and I got to go to this other feast event that, uh, for the queen. Let me read chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman, they went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine, that doesn't mean the second day of this feast. This is the second feast, the day after. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and all my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, It is a foe and an enemy, and it is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Well, that progressed or digressed rather quickly for Haman. 
Just 24 hours ago, everything was going for him, second most powerful man in the empire, and here now, he's essentially going to be begging for his life, and we'll see that in just a moment. Now, it begins by him returning to the king's palace. Now, we just read, we know where this is going, but Haman, remember, has no idea where this is going. Haman has had a rough morning or afternoon. He had to parade this other guy around that he can't stand. But in some respects, this might be just the pick-me-up that he needs. So he was demoralized by having to parade Mordecai around through the town saying, this guy's a hero, everyone should love him. But at least now I get to go back to the palace. I get to have a meal with the king and queen. I can put that behind me. I can let go of all that I've been holding on to. Everything is going to be fine. What he has no idea is that this is going to be the last day of his life. It might even be the last hours of his life. And so he returns to the palace, verse 1. No indication yet is given to where this is going. It's a nice meal, it seems. They're enjoying each other. They're enjoying the conversation. Esther perhaps is a little quiet, trying to... uh, figure out exactly how she's going to muster the words to say. But Haman is laughing, taking it all in, I imagine. Notice verse 2, it says, now on the second feast there, the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king says to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Up to half of my kingdom. He has said that. I think this is the third time now he has said to her, look, make your request. I'm going to say yes, up to half of my kingdom. It is yours. He, he says, all right, come on, no more stalling, he says to her. And again, last week, it seems like Esther chickened out after the first meal, or she didn't sense it was God's timing. But now she's beginning to realize that it is. If you just look down for a moment, look at verse 7. It said, then Esther answered, my wish and my request, if I had found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and my request, Let the king and Haman come to the feast. Remember, she had chickened out, and so she says, can we do this again tomorrow? Now the king says, no more tomorrows. Lay it on me now. Just tell me what it is that you want. And I try to picture Haman through all of this. I imagine Haman has sort of sat back at the table. Chances are underneath the table, he unloosened his button there because he ate too much food. He's got his glass of wine, and it's up kind of here, and he's just sort of laying back with his belly that is out there, and he's having a great time. And then, nervously, our friend Queen Esther, she says this. She begins to him and haul a little. She says, if I have found favor, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Now, if you're the king and you don't know what is going on, you're going to hear that, and you're going to think your life be granted you for your wish your people for your request, where are we going with this, Esther? As what I imagine, she continues, she says, we have been sold, I and my people, notice, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Then she adds, look, if we were just sold as slaves, men and women, I wouldn't have said anything about it. The king himself would have felt the consequences of that because we're good people, and we do what we're supposed to do, but I wouldn't have said a word about it. But the fact is that we have been sold to be, as it says, destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, I imagine that King Haman, sitting there with his big belly out and holding the cup of wine up to near his lips, I imagine that his smile drops pretty quickly and that the the wine glass falls down to the ground because he knows exactly what she's talking about. The king doesn't, but she knows exactly what he is talking about. 
And I find it interesting. Look at her words when she says, we have been sold, I and my people. Then she doesn't say to be killed. We have been sold, I and my people, to be executed. She doesn't say that. Notice what she says. We have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Somewhat overkill, right? Okay, I get the idea. Somebody's out to get you. But if you notice, those are the exact same words that were written into the decree. And so she uses those exact same words that were written into decree to draw attention. And what I imagine is that Haman knows immediately what she is referring to because it was Haman who was involved in putting those exact same words into the decree. So a little while ago when we were looking at this decree that went forth, I pointed out to you the same idea. That's a little overkill, isn't it? Couldn't you just say we want to wipe the, the race off of the planet? Couldn't you just make some statement that all Jews had to be killed, but they had to drive it home? And what I imagine is the scribe there is writing it down, and Haman is speaking, and he said, no, no, don't say kill. Say destroy and kill. No, no, no. Say destroy, kill, and annihilate. I like that. I like the sound of that. And now it's those very same words that are, be, that are being spoken in his presence, and that's why I think the wine glass drops to the ground, and the smile quickly leaves his face, because he knows what is going on here. He knows that Esther is a Jew. He finds out for the first time that Esther is a Jew and he has just made a decree or had his boss make a decree that would kill his boss's wife. And he realizes he's in trouble. Verse five, King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this, he says. And that's why, verse five, that's why I think the king didn't really know the connection yet that is going on, that this is about that decree that Haman had him sign or whatever. But you'll notice he is furious here. He says, who? Who would do such a thing? And the response then from Esther is him. And I imagine a bony finger as well comes pointing right at Mr. Haman. And she points right over to him. It was him. It was him. Now we understand why Esther wanted Haman to come to this meal. Haman's not at some far off place or he's at home or whatever. He's right there in the room. She tells the king and she points to him and she says, it's this guy right here. She says, it's a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then as you see, Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse seven, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and he went out into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. See how these tables have completely turned? For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king is filled with wrath. And so I think wisely in his wrath, he says, I need to take a walk. And he goes outside. He goes in this little courtyard garden area there. And all sorts of thoughts are no doubt running through his mind. Things like Haman, my trusted advisor, has deceived me. He's led me astray. Maybe some self-doubt. I can't believe I handed that guy my ring and said, do whatever you think is best. What kind of a king am I? You know, all sorts of thoughts like this perhaps are running through uh, his mind, this idea that Haman is really just out for himself and not the good of the entire nation. So he gets out of there, takes some time to think. Now, while he's out of there, Haman, as we saw in the verse, knowing now that he's in a lot of trouble, he begins to beg for, for his life. And he falls down before Queen Esther. He says, look, have mercy on me. Speak to the king on my behalf. We can fix this. Everything's going to be okay. Now, of course, as we saw, that only makes matters worse because just as Haman 
is falling at Queen Esther's feet, the king returns to the room. And the appearance is, is that he's like, and you, you can imagine she's on her little couch chair bed thing there as they would be reclining after the meal. And he's like down on the ground grabbing at like her knees or her dress or whatever it is that she was wearing. Please, please, this sort of stuff. And of course, as the king enters into the room, here she, he is grabbing at her dress or something. And so the king makes the assumption that she is, he is trying to attack her. The Jewish people have a tradition that it was the angel Gabriel that gave Haman a little push so that he fell over and he like fell on top of her. And I, I doubt that is actually true, but that's the appearance that it comes in. And again, we've been seeing this in the book of Esther. It just so happens that as Gabriel's pushing him, if that is indeed true, that he happens to be falling or lunging toward it, it appears, to Queen Esther when the king happens to come in. It wasn't like this happened two minutes earlier, then the king comes in and he's getting off of her or away from her or whatever. It just so happens. And we've been looking at how all these things just so happen through the story. That there's someone behind the scenes pulling the strings, moving things around. Of course, it is the Lord. Who knows? I don't know this for certain. I kind of doubt it, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Perhaps the king had gone outside to the, to the garden area, thought things over a little. Maybe he was going to come back in and say, you know what, Haman, I'm sorry I got so angry so quickly. Look, I know this was partially my fault. We should have talked this thing through or whatever. And then he comes in and sees her or him lunging at his wife, and he says, you know what, that's it. I don't know exactly if that happened. I kind of doubt that it did. But he returns back in, sees this man in his mind attacking his wife, and he says, that's it. And notice it says there in the following verse, verse uh, 8, it says, now the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. That is, they put sort of the, the executioner's hood on Haman's head. The king doesn't even have to say, I want him executed. Everyone around the, the king knows Here's your hood, you know. I'm sorry, buddy, it ain't working out for you. So without a word, as it says there, they seize him and they drag him out uh, to be executed. In less than 24 hours, this man, the once mighty prime minister who thought he had the whole world at his disposal, is sentenced to die a death of execution. And you'll notice in verse 9, he's going to die that death on the very gallows that he had had erected to kill his archenemy, Mordecai. It says in verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Now remember, they would execute a person. Um, th they would oftentimes kill them first and then hang them up on a, a stake. They would impale them on a stake. Um, so we read gallows and you think of a noose or something like that. That, that wasn't uh, the method of execution that they had. And so Haman, as we saw, his wife came up with the idea, what you should do to Mordecai is have him killed and hang him from the gallows outside of our house. And so they built a 75-foot gallows stake there in the ground that they were going to have Haman uh, impaled upon. Or excuse me, not Haman, Mordecai impaled upon. Now, it, it's interesting to me, there's this guy Harbona here, or something like that his name is, 
He's a servant of the king. And you'll notice how quickly he comes up with a plan to have Haman killed. And he says, boom, there are, there are gallows at, Mordecai, at Haman's house prepared for Mordecai. Put him on that. Let him be killed. And it just strikes me how quickly this guy is ready to have his boss killed. Some of you know where I'm going with this. What it causes me to wonder, this guy, Harbona, today we might call him like a member of the help staff. Maybe he's a janitor there in the palace, or he's a guy that cleans the tables or works the tables. He's a person that the officials might not even take notice of, and they might run about their things. And unfortunately, a lot of times you see that a person that has a little bit of power might mistreat people like that. Well, you're a nobody. You're just part of the help staff. And I can't help but wonder, and and also we know the character of this guy, Haman, if over the years he mistreated this guy, Harbona. And now Harbona has the opportunity to get even with this particular guy. Now, certainly I, I might be reading into this a little bit, but I do think there's an important lesson here is you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat the supposedly insignificant people of life. And if indeed that is what happened, it's no surprise to me that Herbona now says, oh yeah, you mistreated me all these years, and now you're about to get yours? Well, let me throw my little bit in there as well. Hang him on the gallows, he says, that are outside of uh, his very own home, gallows that he had prepared uh, for Mordecai. And part of the reason, notice he says, the very Mordecai that saved the king's life. It's almost as if he's, he's trying to really convince the king that this is what you should do. He had set up gallows to kill Mordecai, the very Mordecai that saved your life, that you paraded through the streets yesterday. Can you believe he would do that? And so he throws it in there to sweeten the pot, if you will. And the king, he likes the idea. Look at verse 10. The king says, hang him on them or hang him on that. And so he is. We see in verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai and then the king's wrath was abated. And just like that, the king's wrath is abated. Nothing like a good execution to bring a foreign despot a sense of peace and comfort. And so that's what he does. And so everything is well for him. Him being a Ahasuerus. Everything is not well for the Jews. The story doesn't end in chapter 7 because the Jews still have a problem there is still an unalterable decree that on the 13th day of the last month that the Jews throughout the entire empire, four million or so, would they estimate, some estimate 10 million, some estimate around two, so we'll just say five million or so Jews throughout the world are still going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That doesn't change now that Haman is off the scene. In fact, it doesn't change for any reason. You may recall, we looked at this. Again, I quoted Daniel, who also, they were under the rules here, uh, rule of the Persians. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, it says, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So just because Haman, the guy who authored this bill, is dead, does not mean that the decree is off the books. The Jews are still going to be annihilated on the 13th day of the month of Adar, the last month. And that's about nine months from this particular point in time here. 
And so the Jews still have a very serious problem. So now we look, verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. It says, Now on that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. He's my uncle, my older cousin, who raised me like a daughter. Verse 2, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of of Haman. So Haman was a very rich man. You may recall what, part of the way that he was able to convince King um, Ahasuerus that he should kill all the Jews without mentioning their name is he said, look, and the treasury would be very wealthy. $30 million, I think, was the estimate that it was there. And there's some question as to whether he was referring to money from his own treasury that he would give or the, the booty, if you will, that they would take from, or the spoils that they would take from the Jews when they were dead. But either way, what we know is that Haman was very, very wealthy. And so we see here that Esther is now given the house of Haman, this enemy of the Jews. She will go on to put her uh, uncle over that particular house. Verse 2, she sent Mordecai over the house. It's interesting. She's given the property of Haman. Mordecai is given the job of Haman. He becomes the new prime minister. That's what it means there in verse 2 when it says that he gave, uh, the, the king gave the signet ring of Haman to Mordecai. He now becomes the prime minister of the nation. So she got the house, he got the job. Clearly, as we saw back in chapter 6, verse 13, the words of Haman's wife were indeed predictive, if not prophetic. When she said, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. That's clearly what happened, exactly what happened. But again, you look at verse 3, they still have a problem. The Jews are still set to be annihilated. So great, Queen Esther lives in a beautiful home. Wonderful, Mordecai is second in the kingdom. But there's still a decree that they are to be destroyed. Verse 3, then Esther spoke to the king again. And she fell at his feet and she wept and she pleaded with him to avert, to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king had held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and she stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kingdom? Remember, Esther can't go anytime she wants to the king. So in verse 4, it says the king held out the golden scepter. So once again, verse 3, she takes courage. I'm going to go before the king. I'm going to make this request there. Fortunately, she finds the favor of the king. Verse 4, he extends the golden scepter that gives her permission to enter in to make her request known. And as soon as she comes in, it seems she begins to cry out to him. She falls down her knees. She pleads with him, it says, to avert the plan, uh, the evil plan of Haman. That word avert there in Hebrew means to make it go away. King, come on, can't you do something? Just make this thing go away. Her specific words are found in verse 5. One of the things she asks is that, uh, can an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, she says. 
the son of Hamadatha, who wrote to destroy the Jews in all the provinces. Verse 6, she adds, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Can't you just make a new law, Mr. King? Now, verse 7, you'll notice Mordecai is there as well. And so then King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, so the two of them have entered in. And if you look at verse 7 into verse 8, essentially what the king says is, look, I'd love to help you. I'm with you. I even had Haman executed. I'm on your side in this, but my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do. The laws of the Persians are the laws of the Persians, and it cannot be changed, and it cannot be altered. Verse 8, it says, For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, it cannot be revoked. As much as I love you, as wonderful as you are, as glad as I am that you're my wife, there's nothing I can do, and I'm sorry, is what he says to her. Once a decree has been issued, it cannot be changed. Now, what he can do is issue a second decree which can work with the first decree. And that's where he begins in verse 8. He says, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. Again, for an edict written in the name of the king cannot be revoked. So he says to him, Look, I can't get rid of the old one, but you can create a new one, another one, which will enable you to deal with the other one and ultimately what it is is you can create a second decree that gives the right to the Jews to defend themselves and so that we find in verse 9 the king's scribes then are summoned these are the lawyers if you will they're summoned and in the third month which is the month of Sivan remember the decree will go into effect the 12th month so here we are the third month on the 23rd day an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 7.5 million square miles of land, 127 provinces that this decree would go to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. Verse 10, and so he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, notice these words again, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Verse 12, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And so Mordecai here, working with the scribes, they create a new law which allows the Jews to defend themselves against anyone that might attack them. And as you see there at the closing of that verse, they send that news out by swift couriers to every province so that everyone's scattered about, no telephones, no emails, all that, so that everyone in the 7.5 million square miles of land hears that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. That word allowed is an interesting word. It can mean a lot of things. It, it can also mean, and it's, often, it's sometimes used this way, as he enabled the Jews to defend themselves. And the idea would be that he provided them with weapons to, prevent, to pr- uh, protect themselves. And so essentially what you do is you picture a bunch of Jewish people sitting on their front porches with their shotgun. Yeah, come on in. Come attack us on the 13th day of Adar. We're ready. 
and we have permission to defend ourselves, to stand our ground, whatever it may be. That's, that's his way of counteracting that initial one. I can't get rid of it, but I can give the Jews the military authority the, to defend themselves and maybe even the ability to defend themselves. Verse 14. Oh, so the end result then that we're going to see is that most people, when they show up at a Jew's house and a guy's sitting there with a shotgun on the front lawn, they just keep driving by and, and they move out. And so then nobody attacks anybody necessarily. We are going to see that the Jews will defend themselves later on. I think it's chapter 9 and 75,000 people will be killed. Not Jewish people, people that came against the Jewish people. And so we will see that not everybody, I can take them, it's just a gun, boom, oh, it's a big gun. Verse 14, I don't even think they had guns back then. So never mind, I don't know how they did it. Verse 14, so the couriers, they mounted on their horses, they rode out swiftly, urged by the king's command, and this was issued throughout Susa. Verse 15, now Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes and blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. How interesting. Whereas before, uh, he was wearing sackcloth and ashes, and he was the only one who wouldn't shout and rejoice when Haman came onto the scene. Now people are doing that to him. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. What a turn of events. Light and gladness and joy and honor. Verse 17, in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. There was a feast and there was a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves to be Jews, for fear of the Jews had come upon them. So not only are the Jews rejoicing in the deliverance that God had orchestrated, but the peoples of the country are also taking notice of that. And they're responding by coming to the faith, if you want to use sort of the terminology that we might use in our particular day. Uh, here's an important point, I think, to, to catch. The decree to kill all the Jews, to destroy, to kill, and the annihilate has still not been carried out. So these people are converting to the faith prior to, before, the decree to kill all of the Jews. And it's almost as if they're saying, look, I don't care. This is what I want to follow. I want to be a part of that, and I don't care what the consequences end up being because they don't know what chapter 9 is going to bring about. Chapter 9 wasn't written yet. It's seven, eight months away, nine months away, actually, and yet they are converting to the faith. It's the testimony of all that God has done for them, the Jewish people, despite the incredible odds that were stacked against them. That was evidence enough to the population, the unbelieving population, we'll call them that, that God was real, that God was alive, not that he was real. Yeah, sure, he was real back then, but he's real now, he is alive now, and that he's worth following. And despite the consequences, these people decide, you know what, we're in. God had caused the circumstances to not only deliver the Jewish people, but to bring others to himself as well. And even so, God uses the testimony of our lives through the good times and through the bad times. And quite honestly, more often through the bad times, God uses the testimony of our lives as we continue to walk our race or run our race, even through the difficulties of life, God uses those things to display to a watching world that our God is real, that he is alive, and that he is worth following. 
And you've heard the expression, I'm sure. I imagine you've heard it. You're the only Bible that many people are going to read. And it's silly or whatever, but that's the reality. Most people aren't picking up their Bible and seeing the faithfulness of God through the millennia as they read through the scriptures. You do it and your faith is encouraged, but the unbeliever doesn't typically do that. And they haven't been quickened by the Holy Spirit to even pick up anything anyway, to observe anything anyway. But they observe your life, they watch your life, they see the guy that lives down the street going through the things that the guy down the street is going through and yet continuing to honor the Lord in that whole process and keep their eyes on him as they run their race. And that sends a message to people. And people are drawn to what it is that God is doing in your particular life. And so here we have that happening in this chapter. Now, we have to wait to chapter 9 to find out you know, the consequences of this two decrees on this particular day. It's going to be quite a day. But I want to just point one last thing out to you. There's a wonderful picture in this chapter, these chapters, that pertains to the condition of man. Here we are 2,500 years or so after these things happen. And it's a wonderful picture that pertains to the condition of man. Because like the Jews, there has been a decree of death that has been declared against an entire race of people. So remember, the Jewish people, the decree went out, destroy, kill, and annihilate. An entire race of people, maybe 10 million people, were going to be wiped off the planet. Well, there is a similar decree that has gone forth against an entire race of people. And that race of people is, of course, the human race. And the scripture says this, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The apostle Paul would write, the wages of sin is death. And then most concerning for every one of us, in light of, what, of the fact that the wages of sin is death, Paul would go on to say, and all have sinned. So most concerning is that every single person, the human race, has a death sentence pronounced against it. Because the wages of sin is death and everyone has sinned. That's the decree that has gone forth. And like the decree of the Persians, that decree is unalterable. Again, the scripture is very clear. People will say this, well, God is a God of love. I think he'll look at my heart. Yes, so do I. I know he will look at your heart. And your heart is desperately wicked as my heart is desperately wicked. People think I'm, I'm good enough. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as other people. Are you equal to God? Are you holy and perfect as God is holy and perfect? And all of us here, we can yell out. Amen. Three of you. Excellent. All righty. We know that we're not. And that decree is unalterable. If God would look past our sin, then God wouldn't be holy. And he is. And so we have a problem. There's an unalterable decree. And so what's the Lord to do? Well, similar to here of the book of Esther, he must come up with a second unalterable decree, a second decree to counter the first. What is God to do who, despite the fact that we are sinners, nevertheless, nevertheless loves us? If the first decree cannot be altered, what is the Lord to do? The answer is issue a second decree, which is exactly what he has done. Jesus declared, declared to his disciples, he said to them in Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole of creation. What's the good news? That you're going to die and go to hell? Is that the good news? No, that's the first decree. The good news is despite the fact that there's a first decree, there is a second decree that can deal with the first one. That's the good news, that we can be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. It's in Ephesians. Paul would write this to the believers in Ephesians. He would say, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's the second decree that has gone forth that provides a way of escape for sinners. That the way to have our trespasses, that's the way to have our trespasses forgiven. That's the means by which our debt can be paid. That's the idea of redemption. We can experience redemption. And so we have to ask this question. You may never come to this church again. I hope you do because we like you. You're a nice person. But I'll ask you this question in case this is the last time I ever see you. Have you been forgiven of your sin? Or does a decree of destruction continue to hang over your head? Now go back to the story of Esther. The Jews that were scattered around the empire, they had to respond when the news came to them. And so when the next decree came to them, if they sat on their front porch and they said, well, I'm not worried. I know there's a decree that I should be executed because I'm a Jew, but I'm not worried. I'm a good person. I try to live my life the best that I can. I'm sincere. You know what would have happened on the 13th month of Adar? Somebody would have come to them, dragged them off of their porch, and executed them. And it wasn't until they heard that second decree and implemented the second decree that they would actually be safe and that the second decree would actually have an effect on them. They had to believe the promise of the king that would enable them to take up arms against their would-be destroyers. And failure to do so would mean certain death. And of course, the parallel carries over. It's the same with the decree of life that has been issued by Jesus Christ. Failure to respond leaves a person. It leaves a man, it leaves a woman, it leaves a young person. It leaves that person with certain death, physically and most importantly, significantly, spiritually. And so again, I'm compelled to ask, have you responded to Christ's invitation of forgiveness? Have you recognized that because of your sin, you are utterly hopeless without Jesus Christ? And have you come to the place of laying down your life, laying down your own way, taking up your cross and running after him? That's what Jesus invites you to do. And he sends forth us as his children with great haste to go forward and plead with others to do so as well. Imagine if here we are, it's the 12th of Adar. It's the day before the decree to destroy the Jews. And you still knew there were people in your community that weren't taking that decree seriously, weren't taking that destruction seriously. Would you not run from house to house to house pleading with people? to get themselves ready for when the enemy came to attack them. Would you not? Sure you would. And so I would encourage you in two things. One, get right with Christ if you're not. And two, for those of us that are, there really is a lost and dying world living in our midst. And there's a decree of destruction for all of them. Please hear me. There's a decree of destruction for those that you love, even those you don't love, co-workers that you'd prefer not to work with. I heard some young lady say recently, how much somebody told her, and it shook her, and I was like, that's really for real. Did I say this last week? She said this, how much must you hate somebody not to tell them about Jesus Christ? And I said, I don't think I hate people. But the reality is, if I won't go and share that good news with other people, and I'm content to let them die and go to hell, What does that say about me? 
What does that say about us as believers? Amen? There's a pick-me-up to leave with. Let the Lord speak to your heart. All right? I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm not here to make you feel guilty about these things. I'm just here to present what I think the Word of God is telling us. Let the Lord minister to your heart. Pray about these things. Don't immediately go out the door and forget about all these things. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your hand. Lord, working behind the scenes. Father, I, I know that there's a number of us in this room that are wondering where your hand is. They still, uh, they look at their lives and they still, they're in that place of uh, chapter five and they're wondering, God, where are you? And what are you doing? And time is running short and Lord, you have to step in. And Father, I know that for many of us, Lord, our, our faith is, uh, is faltering a bit. And so Lord, I pray that this morning that the word of God would be an encouragement Lord, that you would refresh our brothers and sisters among us that are tired emotionally, spiritually. And Lord, you'd encourage them to take another step. Lord, I pray for as a body of believers that we would do well to come alongside of one another. And Lord, if need be, to take the other's uh, arm and throw it over our shoulder and put our other hand around their waist and say, look, I'll help you run. We'll run together. Lord, you've been so kind to us. You've given us a family of believers to run the race with, and we delight in that. Lord, that's a gift, and we're thankful for it, that in your wisdom, Lord, you've uh, established things to be in that way. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would keep our eyes firmly fixed on heaven. Give us a heart for the lost. Use us in the lives of others to point them to the place of grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.